You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. All right, well, we've got our kids in here today. Uh, Welcome, guys. Glad to have you here. Are you guys ready to think? Kindergartners and up are joining us, and it's time to put on our thinking caps and time to go deep, okay? Um, I'm glad to have you guys in here. We're, gonna be in, we're in our series, our summer series on doctrine, and we've talked about every week how important doctrine is. Um, it's tough. It's a little bit more difficult. Um, it's maybe not as entertaining as a narrative would be, but it's so good to know what we believe and why we believe it, and then to help us understand what we don't believe to be able to fight false doctrine and false truth. So, so kids, uh, you're, in a, you're in a good topic today. We're going to be talking about angels. It's going to be fun. Uh, we're going to dive into some difficult passages, some interesting passages, but I'm glad you're here, and I know you can, you can handle it. All right, so let's talk about angels. Just start from what you know. Like if I were to give you a blank piece of paper, and I said, write a thesis or a paragraph on what you know about angels, what do you think you'd write? I just gave you a blank piece of paper and a pen and said, go, doodle, draw, put, up, put some thoughts down on paper. Take what's in your brain about what you know and think about angels and get it on paper. What would, what would end up on that paper? What do you know? Maybe I'll ask you this que- question. What references would you turn to? If I said, raise your hand right now, t- tell me a passage that talks about angels. What would come up? Where would you go? What passages would you turn to? That's a great exercise to think about. I've had the opportunity to do that for about a month now, to work on this passage and talk about this doctrine. Now, what are we going to talk about? What are the main points? Angels are tough. They're difficult. It's interesting, and I'm excited to share with you some thoughts. So angels. Angels have amazed people forever. Every type of media has used angels as their topic due to their mystery and their beauty. From movies and TV show to project, uh, products that you can purchase, such as dolls and figurines, angels are everywhere. So much so, here's the difficult part, that angels sometimes get lumped into the fictional category, just like unicorns and mermaids and zombies. We don't know what to do with them. Are they real? Are they fake? Are they somewhere in between? We're not really sure. Kids, on your sheet there, you've got a little questionnaire. See how you do on figuring out which ones are real and which ones are fake. The one that's the most fun to me is the Norwal. <laughs> Have fun wrestling with that one. So uh, that's fun. All right, so we are fascinated by angels. But let us not, and this is a tendency we have, let us not have an unhealthy love and admiration for angels, right? Our hearts are idol factories, We love to worship things, and that can be included on things like angels that are interesting or fascinating or majestic. We have a tendency to put too much emphasis on them. Pastor Todd last week talked about uh, Satan and demons. We have that same ability with those to get fascinated with them to a fault. So let's not let us have an unhealthy love and admiration for angels, but let's have a true understanding of them. But never admire them more than the one they serve and worship. Let's look to them, see what they're about, and see who they are about, and let's be about that individual one. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 says that we have this issue in our heart 
where we love to worship created things instead of the creator. And that can be true of angels. Our heart can wander towards worshiping a created thing instead of the, the creator of all. So what, what must we understand about angels? Why are they worth studying? Are angels that interesting? Is it worth our time to dedicate an entire week on the, doc, on the series on doctrine to devote to angels? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because they are so often spoke about in Scripture. Angels are everywhere. They first appear in Genesis chapter 3 with an angel that guards Eden. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, an angel is told to guard it and allow no one to enter. And then they, they finally appear in the very last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, talking about future things. Angels are everywhere, and they're in almost every single book of the Bible. You could turn, open up your Bible, and turn to almost any book, and we could have a discussion about angels. What that book teaches us about angels. They are everywhere. There is so much content about angels in the Bible that we can't ignore them. But they are also hard to study. I've had this experience. Because we don't necessarily have one main text that we can run to when we want to study them. Studying angels is more like putting a puzzle together. Grabbing pieces from all over the place to come to a solid picture of who they are and what they look like. And some of the texts seem to tell different stories, as we'll look. They give them different titles. They give them different actions. They give them different roles. Some of them are wrathful, and some are merciful. Some are very violent, and some are very peaceable. Some bring destruction, and some say, fear not. It's an interesting topic to study, because it's kind of all over the board. So today we want to put our puzzle together on who are angels, what do they do, and that should be an interesting topic today. If you were to take, just in case this is interesting to you and you want to study it a little bit more, if you want to take one text to look at through and say, this is probably the best text um, overall that talks most about angels, it'd probably be Hebrews chapter 1. If you wanted to take something home this week and say, I want to study angels a little bit more on my own, I'd probably point you to Hebrews chapter 1. But it's even interesting that what we learn in Hebrews chapter 1 is that Jesus is superior to the angels. That's the point. Yeah, angels are interesting. They're they're all over Hebrews chapter 1, but they are not the point. Jesus is superior to the angels. And that's where this sermon will go. So why study angels? I have a little illustration for you. Just as studying a beautiful statue teaches you about its artist, so studying angels tells us about their creator. I have a picture here. This is David. If you were to go and look at David and study him, you would marvel at something. You wouldn't marvel at David. You wouldn't marvel at necessarily the stone. You would marvel at its creator. You would look at this statue with all its detail and its intricacies and how it survived over all these years and you would see this masterpiece and this masterpiece would make you think, wow, who made this? And then you'd read about Michelangelo 
And you'd talk about Michelangelo. And you'd have a lot of discussions about him and what an amazing person he is. Your topic would have to eventually transfer from a piece of rock that looks like David to the creator and his majesty and his splendor. And that's what we should do with angels. So studying angels tells us about their creator. Their beauty, majesty, power points to God's beauty, his majesty, and his power. And that's the point. These amazing creatures must, uh, must have an even more amazing creator. So let's not marvel at angels, but marvel at their maker. But let us not ignore them or be ignorant of them either. I think angels can fall into this category of mystery sometimes, so we just kind of throw it out. We don't really know. They're kind of confusing. They're kind of mystical. So just, just get rid of them. Let's not talk about them. I know there's certain camps of Christianity that love the mystical and devote a lot of time to the unknown. And then there are some camps that just say, if we don't know for certain, let's just not talk about them. We want to go as deep as the Word of God tells us and stay there. Neither be ignorant nor, nor idol, um, be idols about this thing. So here's our outline. Here's what we're going to talk about. Three major questions I'm hoping to answer for you today. Who are angels? What do angels do? And why do they exist? I think if I can answer those three questions for us, again, we won't solve everything, but if I can answer those three questions for you, I think we've put angels in their proper perspective on who they are, what they do, and maybe what they look like and why they exist. All right, so you ready? Number one, who are angels? This is difficult. This is tough. This isn't simple. I won't solve it for you in the five to ten minutes. I'm going to delve into this. Who are angels? But here's our title. Here's our definition, if you will. Angels are created spiritual beings who serve and worship God. I want to flesh that definition out for you in just the next couple minutes. Created spirit beings who serve and worship God. All throughout scripture, this is really difficult because angels have different names. They're not always referred to just angels. So when you go to your Bible to study angels, you almost need a vocabulary ready in order to even know what to look for. Each book of the Bible references them a little bit differently sometimes, and you got to be okay with that. you got to know, okay, I see where he's talking about. He's talking about angels. He's talking about spirit beings here. I got it. I, I got this category. Otherwise, you might come up with a different definition for who this individual is talking about. So here are some names of angels in Scripture that they're referenced as. Uh, cherubim are a type of angel. A seraphim, that's a different type. There's the archangel. There's the angel of the Lord. In Job, they're called the sons of God. In Daniel, they're referenced as watchers. In Psalms, they're referenced as the council, the assembly, and hosts. Do you see how you almost need this definition? You almost need this vocabulary as you go to the text because they're referenced so many different times. And if you don't know your different categories, it can get, it can get confusing. But all of those terms are for these created spiritual beings. That's who we're referencing. All right, so they're created. Let's look at that one word. Angels are created. 
The fact that they are created shows their place. That word created is really important because it shows their place. These spirit beings are dependent because they're created. They're not autonomous. Angels aren't just floating around and flying around doing what they want. They don't get to help whom they choose and not help whom they choose. And they don't get to choose whether or not uh, to, to be vengeful and, and, and violent or to be kind and merciful. They are not autonomous. They get their orders from God and they do his bidding, as we'll see in a little bit. They are dependent upon their creator. They have an owner. Psalm 148 verses 2 and 5 says this, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. How did God create the angels? He spoke them, just like he spoke the world into creation. He created the angels. We're not told when. Todd talked a lot about this last week. We're not told when. We're told how, though, by speaking them into creation. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So we can say that angels are created by God and for God. Angels have an owner. They're not independent. They're not autonomous. And I think sometimes that gets lumped into an understanding of what they do. They float around helping them who they want, doing what they want. Oh no, they are servants of God. Number three, that the, the phrase there, spiritual beings. That refers to the fact that they are spirit beings shows their distinction. It shows what category to put them in. It helps us understand who they are. It helps us know that they're not human but they're also not gods or God. They're a special category. You have God, you have humans, and you have a separate category called spirit beings or spiritual beings. Sometimes they are visible, but if you look at Scripture as a whole, that's not normal. Angels are normally invisible. Sometimes they appear And they don't always appear as angels. It's possible for you to see an angel and not to know it's an angel. That's what scripture teaches us. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit eternal life? These are spirit beings. Can they have a body? Sure. Can they look like humans? Sure. But that's not the category they're in. They're in a separate category called spirit beings. They're not human, which means this. They're not limited like we are. They're not limited in their wisdom and strength like we are. But they also aren't made in the image of God like man is. Interesting. They're not limited like we are, but they're also not made in God's image like we are, that special relationship that we have. But we also know that they're not God. They're not gods, which means they aren't limitless either. So they're not limited like we are, but they're not limitless. Let's not give them too much power. 
They aren't limitless in their wisdom and strength. They don't know everything. They're not all powerful. Are they powerful? Yeah. Are they knowing? Sure. But are they, are they omniscient? No. Only God is omniscient. Scripture even tells us that they, they look at grace and the gospel and they're jealous. They don't understand the gospel like we do. They're not omnipresent. They can't just be all places at all times. They're limited in their presence. And they're not omnipotent. They don't have all power. We're going to look at some scripture passages today that show their power. Terrifying creatures. When you look at this text and you read about angels, we'll look at 2 Kings in a little bit, and it shows their power and their destruction and their abilities, but they're not all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. And the last thing, their job. See in that description there, under who are angels? Their job description. They serve and worship God. That's their job description. Their job description's been given to them. We'll discuss their job description in a little bit, but for now we need to know the main category. What do they normally do? They serve and worship God. Let me read a couple verses for you. Revelation 19.10. John says in Revelation 19, Then I, John, fell down at his feet, that's an angel, to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. What a fascinating interaction. John's blown away, just amazed at this angel, to the point where he bows down and worships the angel. And what does the angel do? Reminds him of his role. Hold on, get up. What are you doing? I'm a fellow servant. I'm just like you. I'm very similar to you. I hold to the testimony of Jesus. I'm telling you about someone, not about me. I'm telling you about someone. And then he says to John, worship God. Don't worship me, worship God. He does a great job of putting the right perspective on his role. Is he powerful? Is he majestic? Absolutely. But I'm not the one to be worshipped. Worship God. Hebrews 1.6 says, Let all God's angels worship him. A declarative statement about what their job is and what they do. Let all God's angels worship him. 2 Peter 2.11 says this, Praise the Lord, you, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding. What do angels do? Whatever they're told. Angels do his bidding. He's the CEO. He demands. He gives them their marching orders. And they say, yes, sir. They obey. Angels obey their creator. And they do that very well. So maybe a question to ponder. Okay, Travis, you're saying angels serve and worship God. That's what they do. I kind of had this theory in my head or this thought in my head that angels like serve us. That they kind of work for us. They do good for us. They help us protect us from car accidents. And I thought they kind of served us. Is that not true? They can, but only at the command of their maker. Not of their own will and not at our command. Does that make sense? Is it, do they serve us? Yeah, they do. Ministering spirits. They do help us. They do serve us. But only at the Lord's bidding. Not at their own desire. 
and not at your beckoning. They, help God, they, help, they serve God and serve man through that. All right, this should be fun. Uh, don't put up the slide yet. Um, I want to ask you if you have any false, are there false views of angels that we wrestle with? Can you think about them real quick? Maybe you can uh, steal my thoughts as I was preparing for this, thinking, what are some false views we have about angels? What are some maybe things that media has taught us about angels that isn't true? Maybe some ways we've assumed angels work or play. Maybe kids, you guys can think of some. When you picture angels, I think on your sheet it says, draw an angel. So look at your angel that you drew real quick, kids. And maybe we can talk about what are some of those false assumptions that we think about when we think of angels. This is what we do, okay? So just for a second, think about it. What are some common misconceptions? Maybe some movies or some TV shows you've seen that kind of paint angels in a certain way, okay? I'm going to give you three. This can't be super interactive, sorry. But if this was youth group, it would be. But think about some maybe some false assumptions. What, would, what are some false views people have of angels? You ready? Did you think of some? Okay, number one, angels are my loved ones who have died. Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you've at least heard that theory. Yeah, that's probably a common misconception, right? Angels are my loved ones who have died. They're spiritual beings created by God. So it goes against the very definition. That theory, that viewpoint goes against the very definition of what an angel is. Angels are spirit beings that were created by God as spirit beings. We already talked about the category that they fall into. They're not human. They're not God. They're spirit beings, and they were created to be spirit beings. That's why that theory is not true. There's a famous movie probably a little bit older than the kids in our auditorium, but Angels in the Outfield, have you heard of that? Starring the famous and awesome Tony Danza. In Angels in the Outfield, um, the angel is talking to the main character, the little boy, and he says, the little boy is asking him, why are you here? And the angel says to the little boy, I came to check on Mel. That's Tony Danza. He's coming up soon. He's gonna be one of us. Just a real quick sentence. But in that movie, you kind of get that idea. Like, oh, good old Tony Danza. He's going to move up and he's going to get a halo. And just like I'm here helping you, little boy, oh, he's going to be a great one. He'll do a good job. So don't worry about Tony. Don't be too sad about Mel. You know, yeah, it's sad that he has this sickness. He's only got six months to live. Like, that's really sad, but don't worry about him. He'll be just fine. He's going to be an angel. And that's kind of in that movie. And here's the problem with that theory. That doesn't sound that bad, but here's the problem with that. It's comforting, isn't it? For that little boy to see Tony and to think, oh no, Tony's leaving me. That's really comforting. But as comforting as this idea may be, that our loved ones go on to be angels who help people, and maybe us, it is unbiblical, and goes against the definition that our created spirits. And here's the danger. It replaces the reality of the two destinations of heaven and hell. When you say that your loved ones who die go on to be angels, it's comforting, but it replaces reality. And it makes, it takes away the urgency of an eternal destination. The danger with this view is that it takes away from the reality of two destinations after death, heaven or hell. If we believe people become angels, then we don't have to face the fact that they may not have gone to heaven. 
Have you ever been to a funeral of somebody that doesn't know Christ, that's not saved, and maybe you've heard those nice platitude, you know, heaven gained an angel today, or we gained an angel today. As Christians, that should break your heart because they're putting a hope in something that's not the gospel, in a merciful God that just sends people to be angels instead of eternal damnation like the Bible teaches and preaches. So it's comforting, but it takes away the urgency to preach the gospel, doesn't it? If you have a loved one who's passing away and dying, why not just assume they're going to get a halo instead of preach the gospel to them and tell them about their only hope in life and in death? I think there's a lot of danger in that theory. Second danger or second false view of angels is your own personal guardian angel. You've probably heard of a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. And in It's a Wonderful Life, we have the character of Clarence. He's hilarious, right? Good old boy. And um, Clarence is this picture of a specific guardian angel to one individual. He's assigned to a man. Clarence, this is your job. You stick by him. You look after him. You help him. You help him wade through the waters of life. Help him do good. Then even at the end of the movie, even Clarence is on this um, works-based version of angelology where he doesn't have his wings yet, but if he works hard enough, if Clarence does his job, if he helps him out enough, then maybe that bell will ring at the end and Clarence will get his wings. It's a cute movie, right? If you haven't cried at that movie, then you're a robot, I guess. But uh, it's in that movie is a theory or a theology about angels that as Bible people, we've got to wrestle with a little bit. This idea was very popular, just so you know, it's not a new theory. This idea was part of a popular Jewish belief at the time of Christ and is carried over in some Christian thinking that they all get their own. There are two biblical texts that might hint at this. There are. There are two biblical texts that kind of point or maybe hint at that but they don't state that as a fact. They hint at it. Because everywhere else in Scripture, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, we read that not just one, but many angels accompanied, protected, and provided for believers. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Kings chapter 6. Just a fascinating, fascinating text. Elisha is about to go to war, and God shows up. 2 Kings chapter 6, look at verse 17 on. Let me read it for you. 2 Kings 6 verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me. I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to the Sumerian. It's really an interesting text because there's a reality in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's an army there and they're not able to see it. 
There's something that's true and 100% real that man is not able to see it. And God, in the later verses, opens the eyes and they're able to see the vast army of God that's standing there ready. So does Elisha have one single spiritual guardian? No, doesn't seem so. Jesus, another reference, is Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to his side to take him off the cross if he wanted to, or when Satan was tempting him to throw himself down. He had the freedom to call legions of angels. Another reference is Luke 16. There are several angels that carry Lazarus' soul to Abraham's bosom. So here's what we're just saying, just to go back to theory number two. Do we all have a personal angel? Probably not. A commentary by Erickson says this, we must conclude that there is insufficient evidence for the concept of specific guardian angels. I mean, is that a, is that a hill worth fighting over? No, but we want to know our Bible. We want to be people who know what the Bible teaches, so that's why we teach doctrine. All right, number three, maybe the false assumption that we wrestle with is chubby, cute babies who shoot love arrows. They do shoot arrows. You don't want to be struck by one. Chubby, cute babies who shoot love arrows. This is the famous Cupid idea. They just want you to love. And if you get struck by a love arrow, then things go really well for you. Where the scriptures paint a picture that they're a mighty army of God. Fierce soldiers that you do not want to encounter. We looked at 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant. Then the young man saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Isn't that a terrifying scene? An army of angels with chariots and horses on fire. Do you want to encounter that army? Nope. Are they chubby little babies? Nope. They're terrifying. Most of the time in Scripture, angels look like humans. They have a human form, a male form. When angels are seen, they, originally have, they usually have a human-like appearance so that you maybe mistake them for humans. And in Matthew chapter 28, when the angel rolls the stone of Jesus' tomb away, it paints him with a picture as his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Again, another terrifying image. Shows us a little bit of what usually angels look like. So maybe take that chubby Cupid idea in your brain down and instead put a soldier, a warrior, armed with a bow but it's not a cute love bow. It's a death bow. I don't know. But that's usually a better picture. So number two, what do angels do? We talked about that in the definition, that they serve and worship God. That was kind of the vague definition, brief definition. Let's dive into that a little bit. I want to give you three categories. Again, angels are everywhere throughout your Bible. So when you read a story, I want to be able to give you three categories or three buckets that you could put these categories into. So you read a story and you're in a book of the Bible, it tells you about an angel. I wanted to be able to give you maybe some three categories that most of what angels do can fall into. Number one, 
most of the time, angels declare the glory of God. Most of the time, that's what they're doing. They're declaring how amazing and wonderful God is. In the book of Job, in the book of Psalms, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Luke, in the book of Isaiah, angels continually are praising and glorifying God all throughout Scripture. They're making much of God. That's what they do. In Luke chapter 2, the famous uh, Christmas passage, the angels are declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. They're singing, they're chanting, they're declaring the glory of God because he is worthy of it. That's what they're doing with their time. In Isaiah chapter 6, the famous passage where Isaiah gets to enter the throne room of God and see the Lord high and exalted, it says this, And then the angels were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels are just in God's presence glorifying him because he is worthy of it. Most of the time, that's what angels do. They glorify God. That's their job. Created beings who glorify God. And maybe that's what our job should be as well. Number two, they warn about or administer the wrath of God. Again, the terrifying image. In 2 Kings chapter 19, there's this unbelievable story where the angel of the Lord brought death to 185,000 Assyrians. The, The nation of Israel didn't pick up a weapon. God said, watch and be amazed. And the angel of the Lord, one angel, brought destruction and wrath, the wrath of God, upon 185,000 Assyrians. That's no cute little angel. Number two, it was the angel of the Lord who stood between the people of Israel and the Egyptians at the Red Sea. You remember that? The famous Red Sea story where the nation of Israel passes safely through and then the waters crash down. Angels are given credit for that. It's the angels that are in between the two. And then when the waters subside, it was the angel of the Lord that killed Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. And the book of Revelation is full of prophecies regarding the judgment to be administered by angels. The end of days, the destruction that comes, the prophecies and the judgment that will be poured down will be administered mostly a lot by angels in Revelation 8, 16, and 19. And then when Jesus does return, he will be accompanied by angels. And we all know, right, that Jesus is going to come in judgment and he's going to pour his wrath on the earth and he'll be accompanied by angels. And then Matthew chapter 13, it's angels that'll separate the wheat from the weeds. He will discern the elect from the unelect, the true believers from those who are not. Angels are terrifying. They're an army, and they either warn about or administer the wrath of God. Is God a wrathful God? He is. He will bring judgment. God is loving, but he's also a God of wrath. And he poured his wrath on Christ instead of you, children of God. Number three, what angels do they point to or administer the grace and mercy of God. There are several passages. It's not the majority, but there's many passages in Scripture that talk about how angels help God's children. They guide them. They direct them. They help them get to where they need to go and keep them from going places they shouldn't go. 
In Acts chapter 8, the angels point Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that amazing story? The angels point Philip towards him and where the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved and baptized. It's the angels who pointed Philip in the right direction. They do a similar thing with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. They do a similar thing with Peter and Paul on their missionary adventures in Acts chapter 11, 12, and 27. It's angels who are directing their paths and helping them do the will of God, if you will. Number two, angels minister to believers during hard times. Daniel chapter 9 is a fascinating passage. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel goes before God on behalf of the nation of Israel, asking for forgiveness of their sins, admitting their wrong, admitting how they've strayed and how they've worshipped other gods and how they have not obeyed like they should. And after Daniel's amazing long prayer, it's an angel that ministers to Daniel at the end of his prayer and reminds him and shares with him the mercy and grace of God how God will forgive, and how he'll be long-suffering, and how he'll send a Messiah. Amazing story. In the early church, it was an angel that delivered the apostles from danger. And later, it's an angel that delivers Peter from prison, administering the grace and the mercy of God. The psalmist experienced angels caring during his spiritual needs in Psalm 34 and 91. It's the angels that rejoice when someone puts faith in Christ and comes to conversion. And lastly, it's the death. At the death of believers, Luke 16 says it's angels that carry them to the place of blessedness. See all these references of angels? They're everywhere. Pick a book of the Bible and you could do a theology study on angels. They're everywhere. We must not ignore them. And you look at the two main points there. They declare the glory of God and the wrath of God. Man, beautiful what they do. And they tell us so much about their creator. You stare at the statue of David and you learn a lot about Michelangelo. You read a lot about angels. You learn a lot about our creator, his glory and his wrath. But lastly, his, his mercy and his grace. He points to Christ. Notice how all throughout the Bible, angels are never the point. They're always pointing you towards God. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel Gabriel, the angel, appears to Zechariah, telling him that the Messiah is born. In Luke chapter 1 also, it's an angel, it's Gabriel, who ministers to Mary and tells Mary that she's with child, and the child's the Messiah. It's angels that do that work. In Luke chapter 2, it's angels that tell the shepherds about the newborn king, about the Messiah that's been born and where he is. It's angels that do that. And then in Galatians 1.8, there's a warning says that if you hear, if you're speaking to an angel, and an angel declares to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. He's telling you what an angel's job is. An angel's job is to declare to you the gospel. And even if an angel gets their job description wrong and doesn't do their job, let them be accursed. That's a fallen angel. Don't listen to that angel. Angels always point to the gospel, to the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? They're all over the place. There's so much in this story and in this understanding of what angels do. And what are the, why do they exist? Our last point today. Why do angels exist? You ever think about that? Why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, always-present God use angels? Like, what's their purpose? Does he need them? Well, no. Obviously, he doesn't need them. God doesn't need them 
to learn things about the humans, what the humans are doing. They're not their li- his little ears, his little gossip angels, right? Hey, uh, go check on Travis. What's he, uh, what's he up to? I can't see. No, we know that's not true. He's all-knowing. It, or he doesn't need their help with tasks. It's not like God's out carrying the groceries and his hands are full. And he's like, hey, angels, uh, can you help a brother out? Like, go help. I'm, I'm busy. No, we know that's not the case. He's all-powerful. And it's not like he, uh, he's in Africa. God's in Africa right now. Um, good luck, North America. No, we know he's all-present. He's all-present. So he doesn't need the angels. So what's their point? Here's the answer to that question. Angels' purpose are, they're for our good and God's glory. Does he need them? No. But he's a loving God. That's why he created them. It's not the other way around. It's not for our glory. They're for our good and God's glory. God loves you so much, he created angels. Think about that. Just let that kind of fact linger just for a second. He loved you so much, he created ministering angels. They don't minister to him. They minister to you. That's amazing. And God loves his glory so much, he created angels. He loves praise. He loves to be worshipped. He loves the world to know how glorious he is that he created angels. They serve and worship him. Ministering spirits who serve and worship God. He loves us and he loves his glory. The angels reveal, just the, the, the reality that angels exist reveals God's glory, his power, and his majesty. Colossians 1 says, all things were created through him and for him. The very fact that they exist, man, God's amazing. God created angels? Look, look how beautiful creation is, isn't it? The creation declares the glory of God. But then think about angels for a second. How amazing and beautiful and majestic and powerful they are. Doesn't that tell you about an amazing creator? Wow, what an amazing God that he has the ability to create these miraculous, unbelievable angels. Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Unbelievable. These amazing creatures do his bidding. They obey him. They do whatever he says. This God must be amazing. And angels glorify God's mercy. Does God need angels? No, but he loves to use them. And that help us understand what our role is too. Does God need you? No, but he loves to use you. What's the purpose of the Great Commission? Does he need you? No. He can save who he wants to save, but he loves to use you. He loves to send you on mission and give you the gospel on your lips and give you opportunities to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors. He loves that. Why? Because he loves you. And it gives you a purpose. It helps you understand how much he loves you, that he would use you. Today, our mission trip team's leaving for Chicago. Is Chicago desperate for us? Is Chicago longing for 15 people from Ankeny to come save them, right? That's the hope for Chicago. No, it's ridiculous. But is God kind enough to us to allow us to go? And have the gospel on our lips and to share with little ones the grace and mercy of God. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? That we have a role in the mighty God's work. That we have a role and a purpose. That's beautiful. How good is God to us? So here's our conclusion. 
How do we sum all this up? What's the point? Why study angels? Why spend one week this summer on this topic of angels? Because angels worship Christ. And that should make us take note. That these miraculous, amazing angels would worship Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ is superior to the angels. Are the angels beautiful and miraculous? Yeah, but they pale in comparison to Jesus. And if they worship Christ, Christ is probably worth worshiping. If the multitude of angels who do his bidding bow their knee to Christ, that's probably something to take note about. A couple weeks ago, I was reading my favorite author. And in the book, he was talking about his favorite authors. And I was just, oh my goodness, this is gold, right? And so I'm writing down these dead preachers' names, A.W. Pink. And I'm like, I've never heard of these guys, but if this guy likes those guys, I'm going to like those guys, right? Like, just mesmerized that this author would read those authors. That's what angels do. Angels are spectacular, magnificent, and they worship God? Oh my goodness, God must be worthy of worship. And he is. So today... We worship the one that is greater than angels. The one the angels worship and point to. And the one who for our sake humbled himself lower than the angels for a time to die in our place and to bring us back to the Father. Amazing. Christ, your substitute, was willing to humble himself lower than the angels to be limited in his power for a time so that he could die for you. A wretched sinner like me, Christ would lower himself, humble himself, Philippians 2, below the angels so that he would become like me so he could die for me. That's worth worshiping. That's worth serving and giving my life and devotion to. And that's how we're going to conclude our sermon today. By not worshiping angels, by not remembering the angels, but by remembering our Savior, Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could be forgiven.